Welcome to another episode of El Cafecito. My name is Leonardo Casenza. I'm your host for this third season. Reminding everyone that El Cafecito is sponsored by the Latin American Studies Program at the University of Toronto. Now for my introduction. Diego! Como estamos? Hi guys, I'm, uh, my name is Alex. I'm a student here at U of T. I do not study the history of Diego Maradona. I study aerospace engineering, but my family is Argentinian. And so I obviously love Diego Maradona as well. ¿Qué tal chicos? Aquí quien habla es Guille. ¿Y qué me importa lo que Diego hizo con su vida? Me importa lo que hizo con la mía. Okay, so we're here all together to talk about Diego Armando Maradona, who died recently and who was an important and figurative Latin, America, Latin American figure. And he is important not only for Argentinians, but for Latin America as a whole. And I think that's why it's important for us to talk about him. And before we dive into his biography, I think it's important to mention and discuss why is he really important? Why are we talking about Maradona today? Is it just his football? Is it something beyond his football? Um, we can talk about that first and then we can move on to like the details of his bio biography but i just wanted to know why is he so important well he's important for so many reasons he's important for so many reasons to so many different people right for a lot of people i think he was just an inspiration in terms of football sense and i think that's the easiest way to look at him he's just someone that everyone looked up to and they wanted to wanted to have a hero you know you see him on tv and he's He's an amazing player, but for so many groups of people, and I'm sure we're going to get into it, it goes so much more beyond that, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely, Alex. Um, I, I think that diving into why so many of these different groups might see him as important, and I think it's, it has all to do with the fact that even though he was the greatest football player of all times, he is so important because he was always super grounded in where he came from and who he was. So he came from the, well, we're going to get into this biography, but he came from a very uh, poor uh, region of the Condorbado uh, de Buenos Aires. And well, he, he behaved as, let's say, one of the lads or uno de los pibes, even though he was rich and famous and everyone knew who he was. And I think that's what made him be so approachable and so uh, likable, really. Yeah, I think there's a lot of aspects of him, but I think what strikes me first is his style, his persona. I think there's a lot of things that, that create, it's just like Pelé and we're going to, I mean, I'm going to compare him to Pelé. <laughs> I'm we shouldn't get it. started there on that one, <laughs> <laughs> But I think that Maradona, just like Pelé, had, had this persona that he created. Like there was Maradona out in the fields and out in the public this really brash figure that uh, that was really combative. Um, and there was like Dieguito, like the Diego that was just, that was back from his childhood, back from his family, from his like poor roots. So there was always this big distinction between the two figures. And I think it's it's really interesting how the persona really strikes, like that the, sh the short, like brassy man with the, with the uh, what are those called? The mullets, those mullets are amazing. Um, and it's, it strikes you, right? It's like, wow, this, this guy is like kind of different from the others. Um, and not only that, the history and what he's done is so important. And, and that's what I wanted to start with. So apparently, so he starts from, from really humble origins, um, in, in Buenos Aires, right? Yeah. Straight from the Vicha Miseria. I mean, this is a place 
and I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, it was somewhere in, in Lanús area, but I'm, I don't exactly know where, but yeah, he came from one of these bichas, as they're called in Argentina, that it's a slum with no running water, no electricity, no, nothing that would constitute, you know, a normal home. And this is where he came from. And he was scouted as a child prodigy playing in the dirt streets barefoot with with the, his friends in the neighborhood, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He came from, Alex, I know the exact name, uh, Bisha Fiorito, which we go. If, if I'm not mistaken is in the east of uh, Capital. And yeah, exactly. As you were saying, he was scouted while Will's playing with his childhood friends. And that's what usually happens with a lot of football players, right? Like he just, and it's, and he started really young. So he was uh, 16. He was 10 days before he completed 16 when he entered in the Argentino Juniors and the first division. And that's, that's, wow, that's amazing for a football player. And he started really young and um, starting in 1976 and already in 1978 up to 1980, he was, he was uh, considered the best scorer in the team. And uh, that's that's an interesting feat for for a, a person that came from the, the humble backgrounds that he had. Um, and then after that, he was uh, he was contracted by Boca Juniors, which are which is the the famous Argentinian team, the best and, team in the world. We can just straight <laughs> up say that. <laughs> and, that's debatable. And and it's I mean yeah. <laughs> The and he won in 1981 the national championship and he's considered one of the stars of Boca Juniors up until now. If you go to the La Bombonera around the La Bombonera, there's like, there's I don't know if there's a statue of him, but there's like paintings of him and there's it's like it's like it's like around the area you can see a lot of he's everywhere he's, he's everywhere everywhere yeah. And I also think it's important to state, Leo. You said you said he well won the 1981 championship in Argentina. It's the only title he ever won. In Argentina was that 1981 um, Argentine Championship of Boca. He never again would uh, win the title in playing in his home country. You know, it's mm-hmm. funny. It's funny when you say that because, you know, it's kind of shocking that that's the only thing he ever won with a with a team in Argentina. But you know what? It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter because with Diego, it wasn't what he won necessarily. It was, at least at the time, it was watching him play. That was just so incredible. He was different. The key things that he was different to everyone that came before him. Yeah. So as I was saying, I think Alex has a lot to do with. He didn't play a lot in Argentina. He he was only there for a couple of seasons, and that also added to the fact that he didn't really have the chance to go on to uh, win something uh, bigger like uh, a Libertadores or uh, Intercontinental. He just didn't have the opportunity, unfortunately, to go uh, further uh, with Boca or Newell's or the other teams that he played in Argentina. No, and he. True. And he even stayed long, long, a bit long, too long in Boca. And he said that because he wanted to win at least one title with Boca. And he had this like honor thing, which is something we're definitely going to talk about, which a lot of players don't have. Like some of them get enticed by the fame and the money, and which he did to a certain extent. But he also played for the honor of playing and for representing the team. And he had that a lot for Boca Juniors. And, and he stayed in the team until he got the title. And then he moved on to Barcelona. And moving on to Barcelona, he was, I think, I think it might have been the most expensive player bought at the time. Um, I think the famous figure is that it's 10 million. He was bought for 10 million dollars, I think it was, which, you know, in today's lens is 
quite a laughable amount. It's often compared when players now go for 10 million. They say, oh, the same amount that Diego Maradona was spent on. But, you know, you can't compare what it was. You know, now players are being bought for hundreds of million dollars by by these ridiculously funded teams. But no, at the time, it was jaw-dropping that they would pay this much for a player. Yeah, absolutely. It, it was a record-breaking transfer. And, and it, it would, again, be a record-breaking transfer when he transferred from Barcelona to Napoli. And it, yeah, as you said, Alex, when, well, today, you, you really don't get a top-quality player for 10 million uh, euros or dollars or whatever. I think I would be worth $10 million at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Employing all the... All the football players from Olas. Let's see if we, how much they're worth. <laughs> and I want to make this clear. I'm not implying I'm a good player. I'm just saying that 10 million will not buy you very much these days. No, definitely. <laughs> and there in Barcelona, he, he won a couple of titles there. The Spain Super Cup, the Copa de la Liga. And those are important titles for Barcelona. And that's where he... He consolidated his career as an international athlete. And that's that was an important transition for him because that's when he first moved abroad, right? And that's where, and at least he was in a Spanish-speaking country, it's a little bit, a little bit warmer and more convenient for an Argentine, but it was still a very complicated move for him. And and it of course could have impacted his career, but it didn't. He maintained he maintained himself and he, he rose to stardom in Barcelona. You know, it's interesting. One of the famous anecdotes about Maradona and his time at Barcelona, however short that it was, is that he is one of the few players in history to actually get a standing ovation at the Bernabeu. So against Real Madrid, he was one of the very few players. I think Ronaldinho, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, is the only other person to ever have this, that he was he scored a goal, you know, went through the entire team and made them look like absolute idiots. And he gets a standing ovation from the, from their eternal rivals, which you have to be quite special to, to get that. That's intense. And, and some of the, some of the goals he scores in Barcelona are, are shocking. They're amazing. Like some of his kicks from out, from the outfield, from the outside. And it's just, you don't, you, you just don't can fathom how he can do that. It's like the kick comes from nowhere and he just scores. And there's there's many famous plays that he did in Barcelona, but one of the most the most fundamental and most important plays are the ones that he that he did during the Argentine World Cups, right? And I think that's that's a moment where Maradona went was already he was already already a consolidated star, but I think that's the moment where he entered into history, and I think that's the interesting moment where. Um, politics and sports start to interact and we can start to get this really interesting uh, confounding effect and merging of effects of what really happens in the Argentine reality and in the in the world politics given the effects of sports right and how sports can can really implicate many diff- many many changes in politics and vice versa he entered uh the argentina national team in the juvenile cup in 1979 he didn't win then but in 19 1982 which was the which was his his first start was when he he began his career in the argentina national team i don't know if there were any amazing plays in 1982 were there yeah it was actually in 1978, Argentina actually won the World Cup. So just four years prior, yeah. they had won the World Cup. But it's I should note that 
1978 World Cup, by the way, side note, was largely known to be rigged. That that was hosted in Argentina, and Argentina was in the middle of a military dictatorship. And if you actually go through it, the entire the entire tournament was largely fishy. But at the time in 1982, they still had a lot of those famous players. Like I think you know you had Kempes, Pasarela. You know you had all of these aging players from that had won the World Cup in '78. The thing is that it was a very strange mix now with all these new incoming players like Maradona who were who were young and there was just no identity to this team. So they really underperformed in that World Cup because it was just this team that was just very slapstick thrown together. And and Maradona was, this is the first time he was playing on the world stage and he was getting cruelly beaten by his opponents. I mean, if you watch the highlights, football was a different game back then. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was just... He was getting absolutely destroyed. I don't think I've seen, when I watch the highlights from those games, I don't think I've ever seen someone take so many kicks and get back up. So they underperformed because he couldn't deal with the pressure, really, mm-hmm. at the time and, being so young. Yeah, and, and that's and that's something that happened in the European League too, right? That's something he had to adapt a lot because the European football was way more fast-paced than the Argentinian one. was. Uh, there was more, uh, like, how do I call it? Like, close, close combat, like being close to the, the player. So there was more confrontation and it was harder for him to adapt. And especially when he entered into Naples with the Italian football, that's even more intense. He had to definitely adapt to that kind of, to that kind of move. And it was easy. It was not easy for him, but it was definitely um, more comfortable for him because he was never a really fast player. He was, he was more of a, like a technical and intelligence type of player that knew how to play with the ball and knew how to use his energy and spend his energy in fields to like trick the players and go through them, but not necessarily because he was really, really, really fast, but it was because he knew how to manage the ball and play with the ball, right? And in many of the plays that you see in, and, and, and 1982 was in Mexico, but in 1986, especially when they won the cup, that's when you see Maradona really shining and really showing all his skill. And sometimes these kicks from off field that you, that are amazing, and uh, in going this in, in classic, classic uh, uh, plays such as him going through all the five players in the quarterfinals, and well, to put it simple, he made people look dumb in that World Cup. He was at his prime in the 1986 World Cup. He was unbelievable. He came. Nobody knew how to deal with this guy. He would just walk through teams. It was ridiculous. And I think until this day, Messi and Ronaldo, to be honest, as amazing as they are, they'll never compare to this level of complete humiliation that he was putting people through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And just to, we're talking about, since we're already here at the quarterfinals of the Mexico 86, I think it's very important to just stop here for a second and draw a parallel in between uh, the game, who was was obviously was Argentina and England uh, being played at the Azteca in the Ciudad de Mexico. And it's very, this game is symbolic, not only because, well, being an important game in the World Cup, but because a couple of years prior, um, four years prior even, there had been the, the Falklands War in between Argentina and, of course, Britain or England. Um, so this game has an important impact to Argentines, and I'm sure Alex can talk about this way better than I can. Uh, so I'd like to ask you, uh, what does this game mean to Argentines, this game in particular? Well, this goes very 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 deep right so if i want to properly answer this question i really have to go into the history of what 
the Malvinas War was, right? Yeah, please do, please do. So, so by the way, I'm going to refer always to the Malvinas <laughs> Islands as being the Malvinas. You, in English, common for most people around the world that speak English, they're called the Falkland Islands, but uh, they're, in my opinion, they're really not. They are the Malvinas, and you'll understand why I refer to them this way. So, since the beginning of time of Argentina being a nation, really, Argentina has laid claim to these islands, the Malvinas. The actual history of these islands is rather complicated, but they are essentially a pair of islands that are off the coast of Argentina. I think they're a couple, a few hundred kilometers off the coast, and they were largely inhabited for centuries until, until the British essentially kicked off the Argentine slash Spanish uh, military postings that were there and started bringing over some inhabitants of their own. And since that time, Argentina has been reclaiming the islands and it has been a point of contention for all of Argentinians that throughout all the entire history of the country, the islands have always been and always will be Argentinian, right? For more context at the time, you should know that Argentina was in a middle of a military dictatorship, just like a lot of the rest of uh, South America at the time, right? And in 1982, especially, Argentina was going through a lot of pain at the time. So in 1982, the military government was coming to an end, not that they knew it at the time, right? But it was going through an interesting period because a lot of things were coming to light with respect to the military government itself. I mean, a lot of the terrorism that was going on, the genocide that the military government was committing on its own people, um, all of the missing people, there are, well, 30,000 people ended up going missing during the military government, right? And these were all people that were anti, anti-government. Um, you had, and all of these things were starting to come to light about the torture centers that they had in Buenos Aires what were called the vuelos de la muerte, which would be they would drug people, take them out on airplanes, throw them out into the middle of the ocean so that their bodies were never found, right? These things had all been starting to come to light and people were obviously not having any of it. And when you compare this to also Argentina having the biggest economic recession that it had ever had in its, in its history, Due to the extreme neoliberalism at the time of the of the U.S.-backed government, it's no surprise that they adopted a very capitalistic-oriented uh, economic policy. So there had been unseen poverty levels in Argentina, unseen unemployment levels, and couple this with the pain that Argentinians are having now about living in an oppressed state now for, what would it be, I think, eight years now. Right. So in March 30th, this is actually three days before the Malvinas War starts, there was a massive demonstration in Buenos Aires. And these are youth workers, um, you know, el pueblo, trabajadores, so people, working class people that come out and start protesting against the government. And they're all they're all out in the streets shouting. Se va a acabar, se va a acabar, la dictadura militar se va a acabar. So like, it's going to end, it's going to end, the uh, the military government is going to end. And um, of course, it was a military government, so there was an extreme, extremely violent crackdown on this. I think there was even uh, one or two deaths. And 
this only sparked more protests and there were strikes. And so there was a lot of instability at the time. And so the government, who was headed by General Galtieri, he has a fantastic idea that uh, what do you do in times of crisis? Well, you know, the age old trick, start a war and distract the people. So he decides to take advantage of this feeling, this that had always been there, that the Malvinas belonged to, to Argentina and that they were stolen, usurped by this colonialist power being the British Empire. And he uses this to distract from the feelings of, of anger and to bring the people together behind some sort of national cause being the reclaiming of the Malvinas Islands, right? So that kind of sets the stage in terms of where the people were, but a little bit more on the islands themselves is that at the time, there was also a lot of instability going on in the islands themselves. So there's actually an interesting story that was going on there. There was some Argentinian scrap metal workers. So really all they did was, you know, dig up old cables from the ocean floor and they would sell it for scrap metal. They were actually patrolling some of the islands in the area. I think they were in the South Sandwich Islands or South Georgian Islands. I don't remember which ones, but there's some islands that are even farther away from the, from the Malvinas Islands and obviously still British. And so they wanted to go inspect some of these old whaling stations that to see if there had any scrap metal that they could claim. And they apparently got, got permission from the British government, but there was some issue in the paperwork or they needed some extra permission or whatnot, so that when they actually landed to perform the scrap metal, they were apparently not authorized to do so. The worst of all is that the one of the crew members decided as, you know, what I guess you could say is some sort of a schoolboy level of retribution is that they put up the Argentinian flag when they're there, you know? Of course, because don't forget, these islands in their eyes belong to Argentina. But that's all they're doing. There's some scrap metal workers. And it was very bad luck that uh, I think there were some British scientists just a few kilometers away that happened to be on the same island. And they saw this flag. And so they panicked and radioed an SOS message to Port Stanley, the capital city uh, in the Falkland Islands. And they radioed an SOS message saying, SOS, SOS, the RGs have landed. And of course, there's a huge overreaction. And in Port Stanley them itself, there were some, some of the islanders break into some of these Argentinian headquarters and, and put up a bunch of Union Jacks. And, uh, and then they radio back to the mainland and they say, we need help, we need help, the RGs are invading. And so UK, the homeland, responds by sending a, a warship with Marines to come and deal with these invaders, which really don't, don't forget that these are just a, a crew of scrap metal workers, okay? And now there's a warship being sent to deal with them. So the Argentinian government at the time sends a warship of its own to protect the workers because as the Argentine government sees it, of course, these islands belong to Argentina. So the scrap workers have done nothing wrong because they're on Argentine soil, right? And in response to this, the UK government sends another warship 
to come down. So now you have another warship with even more Marines coming down. And the whole thing is kind of being blown out of proportion. And you couple this again with remember about all of these uprisings going on in Argentina at the time. And so the government has this idea that, okay, you know what? We're going to kill two birds with one stone, I guess. And they respond by sending a full-on invasion force to the Malvinas Islands. And this is when the war starts, of course. I think it was April 2nd or April 3rd that uh, they announce that they, you know, it all went super smoothly because remember that these islands are practically uninhabited. I think they have a few hundred people living on the entire islands, right? So they, so Argentines send their own um, military force, reclaim the islands, and there are huge demonstrations now. Only days after there were these protests in the Plaza de Mayo, you can actually find the videos on YouTube where there's the Plaza de Mayo, which is the main square in Buenos Aires where all the presidential palaces are. It's absolutely packed with people and, and these demonstrations of national pride. And you have the, the dictator at the time, Galtieri, who's giving a, a talk and saying how he has reclaimed the islands and there's just euphoria in the streets. It was incredible demonstrations of national pride at the time, right? The idea was that they nobody thought that the UK was going to care because it's some islands in the middle of nowhere, literally in Antarctica, okay? These are islands way, way, way south that have a few hundred people living there. And since the UK especially was going through their own economic depression, no one thought that anything was going to come of this, that the US, that the UK was just going to let it slide. Of course, you know, they didn't know that they were dealing with Margaret Thatcher. And you guys, I don't know what your opinions of Margaret Thatcher are, but whether you like her, whether you don't like her, she's not really someone to be messed with. So, of course, Margaret Thatcher does not roll over and sends an entire task force with, with top trained Marines and sends them to essentially slaughter the Argentine forces that are stationed in the in the Malvinas. And it was not, it, 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 the war lasted, it was a very short period of time. I think in total, it was two months that it took for them to completely override the Argentinians forces. And it's not only because the UK forces were superior, it's also because the Argentine forces were not true soldiers. These were boys. And these are the, these boys are the true are the true victims of this war. It was that at the time in Argentina, when you graduated from high school, there was mandatory military service, right? So these are 18 year old boys freshly out of high school that are serving in the military. And it was these boys that were sent to the Malvinas who at best had, you know, three to six months of training at best. But there were, there were cases where it came out at the end that some of these boys had weeks of trainings and they didn't even know how to how to assemble their guns and they were being sent to fight in this war against the UK Marines, right? These boys, not only that, but they were completely neglected by the Argentine government at the time, the, the fascist dictatorship, in that the government absolutely knew by this point especially the reinforcements that were sent, they absolutely knew that these boys were being sent to their slaughter and they did not care. 
these boys starved out there. If they did, if they weren't killed by the British, they were killed because they were starving or they were freezing to death, right? They were completely abandoned by the Argentine government. There are stories that are that are well known where you had people all around the country at the time thinking that these boys were the heroes of the country and the whole country was behind them. And so people like my aunt, for example, was teaching at a school in the time in, in Buenos Aires. And in her class, they got all the kids to knit some scarves and, and gloves and hats. And they would send them to these, to these uh, well, they would think that they would send them to these soldiers that are in the Malvinas Islands. Remember, it's, it's, these guys are freezing to death. It's in, it's in Antarctica. Of course, these scarves never got there. These scarves and these hats all ended up in stores all around Latin America. And the money was prof was kept by the people in the military, the higher ups in the military. There are also stories of people going in downtown Buenos Aires, going to a kiosk in the middle of the street to buy some chocolates. The, they would open up the chocolate and inside there would be a little note, handwritten note from a schoolboy in Tucumán, a province in, in the north of Argentina, that says, I'm sending you this chocolate to help you stay warm in the Malvinas. And of course that never got to the, to the soldiers. So these soldiers, I'll reiterate, were sent to their slaughter and were completely neglected. They starved and they froze to death if they weren't killed by, by the British. So these children, these I say children because they were 18 years old, knew nothing about what they were doing. They were completely innocent and they're the true victims here, right? This obviously within two months, Argentinians lost the war and the British reclaimed the war. and. It's a thorn in the side of all Argentinians that, that live, that they will never forget this. It's an extremely painful moment in Argentine history that will live on in the collective memory of Argentinians forever. Now, shifting it back to the 1986 World Cup, you can understand how important this was for Argentinians, where they're now meeting England in the quarterfinals of the World Cup only four years after the Malvinas War, right? It's extremely fresh in everyone's minds. And it's you're kidding yourself if you think that this is just football. At this point, this has nothing to do with football, right? This is a way for Argentinians to feel like they can get back at the British, you know, that they were absolutely destroyed there were slaughters our boys were killed our boys were slaughtered and now we feel like we have a way to avenge them so that's what it meant for argentinians and in the end they won right um two one with two goals of maradona and the first one was el gol del siglo the one that i described where he just snaps through five players and and these are just goals that are worth watching, I think, in general. Well, and both we... of these goals could be said to be the most famous goals of all time. I mean, the first goal was the hand of God where he scores a goal with his hand. Okay? Mm -hmm. He scores a goal with his hand. What better way to really say F you back to these to the British soldiers, to, to the British government, I should say. What way to say F you than to score a goal with your own hands, you know? To say, to stand up to the colonial power of the British and, and and then not only that, but then turn around and score the next goal, which is widely seen as the best goal of all time, 
because like Leo, you were saying, he literally went through the entire team, something that had never been seen before, and then scores the best goal of all time to make it to nothing. I mean, this was absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, and and they're definitely worth watching. And as we were talking about before in the before recording, the narrator goes wild. He, the Argentina narrator. I know he's famous, but he in Brazil we have our famous narrators. But this man goes wild when Maradona scores a goal, and it's definitely worth. Maybe we'll put it up, <laughs> and it's definitely worth listening to because it's it reflects the moment. It reflects the passion of football. Because in Brazil we have these similar moments of like. It's 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 like these moments of indescribable happiness. It's like it's almost like the peak of happiness that a nation, like a, a Latin American nation. Let's at least how it feels to me. Like it's the peak of happiness that all of these people are together having, and and it's and I think it, the the narrator really represents this moment of 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 like a, uh, it was even the finals, it was the quarterfinals of this this moments of that didn't matter that it was a quarterfinals. This was more important to Argentinians yeah, than the final yeah. itself. Definitely, definitely, definitely. And they went on to the finals against Germany, right? It was against Germany, West Germany, yeah. Yeah, and then they won um, in 1986. You know, there's a moment at the end of that game. Uh, at the end of the Argentina Argentina England game, where the same narrator, of course, you know, if you if you hear the narration of the of the goal, it's extremely emotional. But at the very end of the game, it's even more emotional because you see the players running around as if they've already won the World Cup. You see the people in the in the crowd crying because of how much this means to everyone there. And then the narrator on national TV says, "I'm not well. Maybe we can put it in Spanish, but uh, translated." He basically says Argentina has won against England, against England, and this I'm gonna say it only one time, and God forgive me because I promise it's not a low blow. This is for all those boys that can't shout the victory. This is for you, Argentina two, England one. Absolutely, that is very emotional, uh, and the name of the narrator is actually Vitor Rugo Morales. And just to add one more thing about the game before we move on, if we're going to move on from this, <laughs> it is that this game, uh, Argentina 2, England 1 in the 1986 quarterfinals, is considered the best uh, game in World Cup history uh, by FIFA itself, considers as the greatest game of World Cup history. So that's also uh, extremely uh, significant, not only to the history of Argentina, but to the history of World Cups uh, themselves. Oh, 100%. I recommend everyone to watch the game in full. Of course... England was a very powerful team at the time as well, but if you actually watch the entire game, I say this with no exaggeration, and I promise, of course, I'm biased, but Argentina could have scored five, six, seven, eight, nine goals. Diego was on fire that game. The amount of times they hit the post, they just barely missed. It was incredible game, incredible game. You can tell that the players were inspired. They were playing for much more than just themselves. Definitely, definitely, it's exactly because of the political reasons and and the way they defined it was perfectly how it was uh, it was it was just it was for the boys, it was for the for the people back home, and it, it's charged with emotion. It's a moment that's charged with emotion, like many World Cups are, and many World Cups are in the Latin American history. And I think it's a valid topic of talking about. We should definitely talk about some other World Cups because uh, they're 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 moments of injunction sometimes, you know. I feel that like there are moments of where a lot of political pressure is is, is taken out, 
just like the 1970 Cup and well, Brazil won, was moments of of absolute happiness that it should be talked about, that are interesting to talk about because they have so many political implications too, right? And 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 again, and then in, and and then let's just go back a bit because I think that's also an interesting moment and period in Maradona's history, which was towards his. Uh, he was still part of his like um, part of his mill career when he started in Naples in 1984. Um, and that was uh, that was an interesting move for him because he was in Barcelona, which is this huge team. And instead of being um, contracted to play in one of the big um, Italian teams like like Milan, Inter de Milan, or or Juventus, he didn't play for the big ones. He decided to he picked uh, Napoli's, which is this this team from southern Italy, and and he decided to pick and he decided to play for them. And it's interesting to see how in he developed his career there, and now he became an icon for the Italians there. He became uh, he became a a figure, a an important figure in Naples in southern Italy because he started to inflame the distinction that Italy has between its north and south. And um, in the beginning, when he started in 84, 85, they were still losing many games, and the team wasn't well fit together. Um, but as they moved on to 86 and 87, the team started to integrate together and Maradona started to shine. And that's when they won the Italian leagues of 87 and went on to win the UEFA Cup in 89 and then the Super Cup in Italy in 91. And all of these were successive victories that Maradona got. And, and that's, and that's it's interesting, right? Because you go in, 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 in Europe, you can go from the national to the Superliga, to the Copas, it goes up and up and up, and and they won all of them in a streak in the, in the, in the late 90s, and that was basically because of Maradona. Maradona carried the team all throughout. His intelligence of organizing the team and the attack was like fundamental to win most of these games. And then he became a national icon in the southern, southern Italy, and he represented these people. Um, and it's and it's it's interesting to see how he represents. Uh, he begins to to have this image of the representative of the oppressed, of the underdeveloped, of like like Argentina and England and the Southern Italy versus Northern Italy. Um, he becomes this figure of, of representing the Pueblo of, against the elites too. He has this kind of, he also has this extremely anti-imperialist stance. He's a man that has Che Guevara and Fidel Castro tattooed on his, on his back, if you can't, can't forget about that. Um, and so he always had this passion for to to spread happiness, to spread this happiness in favor to, to, to the pueblo, to the people, and to work in honor for the team. I think he had a lot of that. And in Naples was the time where he he shown in that sense. He showed she showed all the the effort that a player can put into a single team and to win one streak after one in the streak one after the other um, because of him is amazing. And up to now, just like in, in La Bombonera in Naples, there's statues of him and ovations of him because he's really well known for having changed a generation, right? Because these were people that in Naples where they they never won hadn't won a, a national cup in years. And and then Maradona comes in again and, and starts bringing this winning streak to southern Italy. And it's it's amazing to see how how Maradona is able to his injection into a team is able to bring so much and bring so much energy and so much joy to people. 
and he definitely made the the difference in that team and he stuck there for a while for a long while from 80 from from 80 from 84 up to 91 right um, up to towards the end of his career and and that's when he shone the most and that's when he maybe maybe shown last I'd say because there's also the 1986 World Cup that's also important to talk about right because uh, the, sorry, the 1990 World Cup uh, in Italy. And that's when uh, you had important moments like in the quarterfinals, I believe, that was Argentina and Italy. And uh, Argentina was playing against Italy in Naples. And it was it was an interesting feat because you had the Italians from Naples that supported Maradona and loved Maradona and uh, we're having, we're cheering against him because he was playing against the, their national team. And uh, Maradona, of course, as he does, he stirred things up and he called in the media for the Italians to support the Argentinian team. And there's like press coverage of like, of, of people being asked in the streets, like, are you gonna, are you gonna uh, support Maradona or are you gonna support Italy? And they were all divided. People, people, some people wanted to support Maradona, some wanted to support Italy. In the end, uh, Argentina wins uh, in the penalties with a goal by Maradona, and I think that was that was a, a critical moment. I think in his career, that's when things started to go wrong in many ways, right? Because when he scored this goal, was when he he kind of betrayed in a way the Italians that loved him. Like he he was playing for his team, of course he was going to win, but in a way he he betrayed the Italians, and that's when he started to lose a bit the this the standing ovation and like the god stature that he had especially in italy and i don't know i would disagree with that i would disagree with that that he never really lost the god status that he had in italy right because if you look for example napoli as a club they retired the number 10 jersey after diego went through think about how important number 10 is for for a club to, to wear and they decided that no one will ever will ever reach the status that Diego had at our club so that they retired the number 10 jersey. Yeah, but that's when he's but that's when I think that's a moment in his career where like he started to be I, I agree, but like when he started to to see the cracks behind the god structure, you know, the cracks behind the amazing Maragona figure, you know. That's well, when it's not That's so when the much media about... started when the media started to attack him really started to like go and get on top of him because of his drug use because of his the parties he used to go to and because of his consumption patterns like everything that's when i think in the early 90s when the media started really really to hit him hard and when the anti-doctrines things came came starting uh, started to, to come up and i think that's when there was like a dance to his to his image clearly right well for sure okay so now it's important if we're going to get into this it's important to separate maradona as a person and what maradona did on the pitch right maradona as a person is an extremely troubling person and there's a lot to talk about there but when we're talking about what he did on the pitch he will never be forgotten and he will always be seen as a god there's a very popular saying says la pelota no se mancha you know the ball doesn't get stained it's no matter what you do as a person what you do with the ball will never be stained. So it really boils down to this. What he did in Argentina, what he did in Naples, he took a group of oppressed people and gave them something to be proud of again. 
right? He restored their dignity. He restored their pride and gave them a way to stand back to their oppressors. So it doesn't matter what you do as a person beyond that. That memory in the collective memory of the people will never be forgotten and that will never be stained. So, you know, in, in, in Argentina, it was obviously a way of standing back to the colonial power of, of the UK and of avenging the slaughter of those young boys, not necessarily saying that the UK is to blame for the slaughter, but still finding a way to, to feel like they were avenged. And in Naples, it was more of, you know, the South had always been shunned by the North and they'd been hit by disease and economic depression and, and unemployment and whatnot. And he took a team that hadn't won anything in, I don't know, 50 years. And he found a way for those people to be proud of something again. So that is what cemented his figure as a God, not him as a person, but what he did with with the places that he was, what he did with the ball. I agree, Alex. And I just wanted to expand a bit on what, on what you guys were talking about, how he, you know, he arrived in Napoli and it's no, well, you can't go around it. He revolutionized uh, the team, like uh, speaking f- football terms. Uh, Napoli had never won a championship ever in, in Italy. And uh, well, he was the one who led them to their two scudettos, as they're called, to their two national titles, and they haven't won anything since any uh, national title since. Uh, same with uh, their only uh, continental uh, a title they ever won was the UEFA Cup that uh, Leo was talking about. That was again the only continental cup ever won by the club, and it was never won again. And an interesting anecdote that I'd like to talk about in his time at Napoli is that after winning the '86 World Cup and winning the first Scudetto in Napoli, uh, the president of uh, AC Milan, so the, the, probably the most powerful Italian club in history, uh, so his, the president of AC Milan was Silvio Berlusconi, who would go on to be Prime Minister of Italy, uh, tried to well lure uh, Diego to play for Milan, uh, but well, Maradona clearly rejected that, never having played for Milan. And that is, well, I guess what I'm trying to say with this anecdote is that it goes to a lot of what you two were saying of how it wasn't about money for him. He would have he would have been the most well-played player, uh, probably in it, definitely in Italy, maybe in Europe, had he moved to Milan, but it wasn't about money for him. It was about representing the people. He had a very strong connection with this uh, poorer, more humble uh sector of Napoli, he really honored his time there. And I agree with you, Alex, in which that pelota no se mancha, he was the one who came up with that, actually. And uh, I don't know if we're going to get into that, but when he returned to Argentina, he gave a, actually, when he was re- being retired, uh, he gave a speech at uh, La Bombonera, I think it was 2003, if I'm not mistaken. That's when he said uh, those magic words. But absolutely, uh, what he accomplished in the pitch in Napoli uh, really it's impossible to really put into words. Uh, the day he died, as a matter of fact, the stadium of Napoli, which was called Sao Paolo, is now named the Estadio Diego Armando Maradona. Imagine you uh, taking the name of a saint and replacing it with the name of a player in Italy. I guess that's, I'll leave it at that. That's how important El Diez is uh, for Napoli. And I don't want to take away, I 100% agree with everything Guiche said, but I don't want to take away from what Leo was saying. I mean, Diego really did have a very tumultuous life in the later part of his career, and that didn't finish until he just recently died. 
he always had controversies. I mean, he was addicted to cocaine. How many times? Alcohol problems. He had weight issues. He, he. There were times where he, he. I think he shot at a journalist once. He got so many bans in football. He, I mean, he even had domestic violence uh, complaints against his. So he, he was a. He beat his girlfriend. I mean, how do you reconcile that, right? Someone being a god on the pitch, and at the same time in their personal life, a domestic abuser. It's extremely complicated issue and a lot of people dislike Diego even in Argentina because of what he did as a person yet and this speaks a lot about our society that someone who is a domestic abuser can be forgiven and absolved of all of their crimes because of what they do for you and it goes a lot to what you said in your intro which is a very famous saying Gishe that you said it doesn't matter what you did in your life it matters what you did in mine right just because someone meant so much to you as a person are we willing to forgive them of all of their misdoings of all of their crimes essentially because domestic abuse is not something to be talked about lightly yeah yeah and it's and it's and it's a point of contention it's hard um Many stars have that, and it happens with most of them. And Diego wasn't uh, wasn't spared from that, and it's a huge pressure. Um, it's it's been told, but it's it's been avidly it was avidly commented by him the pressure that he felt, not only for representing Argentina, but for representing the people and for representing the team and for playing well and for needing to playing well and for need to perform. And this all builds up, and with cocaine, how addictive it is, and how easily it lures you into it, and how it creates this feeling of being a Superman. He got into it, and he got, and he ended up into, ended up extremely addicted to it. And the same thing with alcohol, and you said, and with his weight problems. But despite that, I agree that um, I, I definitely agree that you have to separate the hu- the human part from the player, and and that's some, and I would say that sometimes it is. It is uh, you. You have to take it. You have to take it lightly because it's such a pressure on to the single person, right? So much responsibility that you you have to carry for so long, um, and even in his personal life, he was the one who who paid for his. In, in the beginning, he says in the beginning of his career, he only wanted to pay for his parents' house and have somewhere to live, and now he was like winning the national cup. He never thought of these things. Like he never had all these ambitions, and all these ambitions kind of came to him through his skill and so it's 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 also it's important to, to note that he he he's faced a lot of things and by facing a lot of things you end up you end up finding these these escape bobs that that affect you in many ways and i don't think he should be should he should be as a creative for that because he he's still a very important figure for argentina and for the world right yeah absolutely um and just uh no, I absolutely agree with both of you that while while la pelota no se mancha, you can't ignore the you know the the bad things one uh one did in one's life. Um, I'm not super familiar with the uh, domestic abuse case. Of course, if it is true, it has to be condemned. There is no way around it. It's absolutely unacceptable. Uh, I'm gonna talk to somebody I'm more familiar about, which is his uh, drug addiction. I think that he got really. That's the thing when you're talking about that before, Leo. He got destroyed by the media and by a large sector of the public about that. 
even though, well, it, at least for me, and I, I, I would think that a lot of people agree with me that what he experienced was a disease. He had a chemical Absolutely. dependency. It was a chemical dependency that he, he experienced. And he did many times try to, you know, uh, get clean. Let's, let's put it that way. Uh, that's when he went to Cuba for, I think, five years he stayed in Cuba uh, treating himself. That's when he became close to Fidel. That's when he truly uh, had a shift to the left. Let's say, put it that way because that's, well, Fidel Castro became a second father figure to him while he was in Cuba treating his his chemical dependency, which again is a disease. So I do think that people sometimes really go overboard with this whole uh, cocaine issue because of course it's something bad. And if it led him to, for example, commit domestic abuse, it has to be condemned. There's no way around it. But if, you know, but solely focusing on his chemical dependency, I don't think it should be treated as a necessarily a terrible thing that ruins what he did or what he is, but it needs to be treated as any disease. He was, he suffered from a disease and he was trying to uh, get cured. And that's what, what, that's exactly when he said the, the phrase Alice was talking about. Uh, the full quote, if I'm not mistaken, is, uh, Yo me equivoqué, pagué, pero la pelota no se mancha. So um, I, I, I committed mistakes and I paid for them, but the ball does not stain. I absolutely agree with you that throughout his entire career, he was extremely berated for his addiction issues. And I also agree that that's a disease. And I feel like if he would have had those issues in today's age, he would have been treated much differently, right? He did not have the fortune of struggling through these things in a more tolerant world. And this obviously took a toll on him as well, but that's not necessarily what I take issue with of him being as a person. And of course you said, you, you weren't too familiar with it, and that's totally fine. And that actually speaks to my point about the his very his very real issues were always swept under the rug because of how much he meant to people, that people were so willing to forget about these very real things that he did. So, yeah, I don't think there's too much more to say on that. I mean, it's just, you can, you can really study, there's a case study on humanity and on, on our willingness to forgive and forget when someone means so much to us. There's a huge case study for this. I mean, you can study all of humanity just by studying the life of Diego Armando Maradona. It's really, it's really Argentine of you to say that. <laughs> but, and it's, and, and I think, and, and I think, well, throughout the, of course he had already consolidated his career, but throughout the nineties and the early two thousands was when he, he became he became the Maradona we know, at least the Maradona I know. Like the old Maradona was the the kind of crazy Maradona is the one I know. The one that like the one that screams in the stadium, that went whack when Messi Messi missed the goal. Uh, that 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 screamed at journalists. That yeah, get exactly that shot a journalist with a BB gun. Um, that kind of Maradona that's kind of in my mind as well because he's the one that was kind of alive when I was alive. But he, he was a football coach. He was a coach for Argentina in 2010. He took them to the quarterfinals, which was, which was something. Um, and Messi was in the team. <laughs> yeah, that's, 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 a, that's a painful memory there, too. Yeah. <laughs> he was a director of Boca Juniors. He was a sports commentator. He was even, even a TV show, TV show host. He has an interesting TV show host, TV show program called La Noche de las, del, del Des. Del Des. And it's 
and it and it, it it hosted it had Pelé in it, it had Shusha, it had like random figures from Brazil and uh, Latin America, and and he and that's when he consolidated himself. That's when he he became the Maradona we know, and the Maradona that that of course part of it will remember because it's this 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 interesting figure that we see, but also for his successes and the successes he had in his early career. And all throughout, the the happiness that he instilled and that he brought to people was fundamental and really beautiful. Um, and it's something that very few Latin Americans are able to do, and he's able to embody all at once. Um, and that's why it's important to talk about these these relevant Latin American figures like uh, Diego Armando Maradona. And that's why this episode is dedicated to him. Do you guys have any other final thoughts? Yeah, I guess just it. I just wanted to add like one last thing before we wrap up. Like he was also very politically involved. I touched that a bit. I touched uh, at that a bit when I was speaking about how he went to Cuba to treat his disease, and that's when you know he became really uh, identified with the left, which he. I suppose he before he was more of an Argentine nationalist, but after he went to Cuba, he truly took this uh, turn to the left, and he becoming really close to Fidel Castro. I believe that's when he got his famous Che Guevara tattoo on his uh, right uh, arm. And uh, once he did return to Argentina in uh, circa 2005, uh, 2004, uh, that's when he uh, started really backing up the the Kirchner, uh, the Kirchner government in Argentina. He was a really big supporter of Nestor Kirchner and even more of Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner when she took power in 2007. Um, and more recently, he, well, his relationship with Macri, uh, the former president of Argentina, is also very well known when Mauricio Macri was the president of Boca Juniors when in Maradona's second uh, stint at the club and they hated each other. So uh, back then, this was in the late 1990s. And so when Macri became president in 2015, Maradona was a very, very staunch critic of the Macri administration. And well, right before his unfortunate uh, death, he was a very strong supporter of uh, the current president of Argentina, Alberto Fernandez. And again, of course, supporting also the vice president, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner. So yeah, just wanted to also give this quick um, overview of how he he behaved um, politically speaking the last couple of years. But again, he wasn't always a super leftist. For example, he supported uh, Carlos Menem in the 1990s, who cannot be called a leftist by any standard. So, yeah, really, he that's was my conclusion. A far, beyond being a leftist, he was really more of a peronist, right? Where he always supported peronismo, which in Argentina, peronismo is a you can do guys, you guys can do an entire podcast about peronismo on its own. But to oversimplify it is that it started out being a very leftist movement, but over the decades, it has transformed into being a very complicated form of populism that can be very, if you oversimplify it very strongly, it can be seen as leftist, but it's really more complicated and can take forms in terms of things that really are quite far right, just like Menem was. But because he was still... Peronist, that's why Maradona supported him. So it is a little bit more complicated there, but I do agree that that Maradona was always a defender of the people, was always a defender of the pueblo, and he was a hero to so many. And he, his memory and what he did for Argentinians, for the people of Napoli, for 
for so many more, even beyond what he did in football. He was an inspiration to people all around the world. I mean, I have a, I have a friend who, when Maradona passed away, he told me that uh, he grew up in Rwanda. And when he was in Rwanda at the time, people were naming their children Maradona. And until he was, you know, seven years old, he had no idea who Maradona was. He just knew of Maradona. He knew of a figure, Maradona. And that's how much Maradona has transcended popular culture. He will never be forgotten. As long as humans exist, Maradona will be part of our memory and what he's done will be a huge part of a lot of people's memories. Argentinians will always be claiming the Malvinas and Boca Juniors will always be the best team in the world. These three things are, are certainties for our future. And so Maradona, he was a complicated man. He was He did a lot of great things. He did a lot of not great things. And it's extremely difficult to talk about Maradona in a black and white sense. And the only thing we can say for certain is that he will never be forgotten. Beautiful, beautiful. And with that wrap up, I'd like to thank everyone for coming. Um, reminding everyone that El Cafecito is available on Spotify, iTunes and SoundCloud. Thank you very much and I'll see you next week. Bye bye. <laughs>